Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Hey, if you were a Jewish person at the time of Christ, there would be three major authorities in your life. The first would be what's called Torah. Uh, Torah is the first five books of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch. That is so critically important to Jewish people, that the writings of Moses, the law, the teachings, God's heart for us. But then you would add the rest of what we would call the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible. It's called Tanakh. Tanakh is not just the, you know, the, the writings of Moses. It's the wisdom literature. It's all the historical writings as well. And so that's, we would call the Old Testament, they would call the Jewish Bible. So if you're a, a person growing up in uh, Jerusalem, in Israel, anywhere around the world, if you're scattered and you are Jewish, you have those two authorities in your life, the written word of God as given to Moses and the written word of God as delivered throughout all of the prophets, the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. However, you would also have another set of teachings called um, Torah. Oh, no, sorry, called Talmud. And Talmud was oral tradition that was later written down after the time of Christ, written down. And Talmud would be like, uh, if you're a Bible student or pastor, you have a lot of commentaries. People write about a text. They tell you stories. They explain things. That would be simply, uh, you know, a good way to understand it. The Talmud was very important to the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day. And in many ways, uh, it was more important than uh, Torah and Tanakh. And Jesus never disobeyed Torah and Tanakh, but, oh, he seemed to go out of his way to fight with the religious leaders about what they had as extra traditions of the rabbis, of their fathers. Now, I want to read uh, a prayer that a Jewish man would recite every morning that comes not from Torah, doesn't come from the writings of Moses, not from Tanakh, not from the writings of God through the prophets in the Old Testament that we would have, but from the Talmud, which is the religious teachings, the oral traditions. Okay, ready for this? This is how it goes. Three parts. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who did not make me a Gentile. Isn't that good? Man, that's awesome. Write that down. Chew on that for your devotional today. What is that? Okay, if you're a Jew, by definition, you're not a Gentile, a goy. A Gentile is anything other than a Jew. 
And a Jew is the, the one that comes from Abraham's seed, right? So, so they were very precious in God's eyes. They were selected because of Abraham. But by the time it gets to this, it's, uh, it's prejudice. It's really over the top. It's this ethnic issue going on here that they would look around and go, and they wake up every morning and go, God, thank you for not making me a pagan, but I'm one of your chosen people. And they had that understanding. They had that belief. Well, it goes on. The prayer goes on to say, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who did not make me a slave. Oh, man, I'm a Jewish person. I'm not a slave. I am a free man. I mean, okay, there was that time in Egypt for 400 years, and then there's the time now uh, when the Romans are ruling, and then the, then the Greeks, and, the, you know, okay, there have been histories. Um, but they were fiercely independent in their heart, and they were fighting to be free. And so they'd wake up every morning and say, God, thank you. I'm so much more important than a slave. All right, there's one more part you're going to love. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, and that you don't even have to let me read it because you've already read ahead, who did not make me a woman. We, uh, we've decided this is going to go in our church bylaws. Um, <laughs> no, hold on. What? Are you kidding me? If you're not offended, you should be. Okay, this is misogynistic, right? Okay, but think about this. You would wake up every morning and pray, God, thank you for making me better than all the creeps on earth. I'm, I'm a chosen person. God, thank you for making me so much better than those people that can't afford to live a free life. And especially, God, thank you for making me a man, the epitome of your creation. Which you could argue women was made after men, but then, you know, because he needed, he improved on it. Okay. Um, now, hear me. That, that is highly offensive, okay? But imagine a culture steeped with that. What have you, you got? You've got racism going on there, right? You've got an ethnic hatred. Okay, that's not acceptable. That's not of the heart of God. Definitely not of the ministry of Jesus or Paul, right? Um, but there's tension because you're a chosen race or you're everybody else. And then you've got this idea of slave and free, and slave and free, I mean, there are economic conversations. So you, you're the upper class, middle class, the people in poverty, food stamps. Thank you, God, for not making me like that. Really? That God cares about our economic status? Oh, he's blessed some of us, but he's cursed others? Hmm. Well, that doesn't sound very good. And then the big one, it's like, God, thank you for making me a man because women are lower class. I, I, I don't understand that, but I was just talking to a friend who's a professor at Corbin. I was doing uh, some commence uh, commencement speaking yesterday at their graduation, and he was telling me about a guy who, I kid you not, this is, this is so bad. He was in a class, an older gentleman, who refused to be in a class with women because women are just like babbling brooks, giving worthless words. I'm like, whoa, did you just smack him with a baseball bat or flunk him or kick him out? I mean, where, where does that come from? Well, I'll tell you where all those come from. A heart. A heart that's deceived. A heart that's wicked, desperately wicked, that we don't even know how bad it gets. Now, the, the beauty of the gospel is that it flips all of those on end. In fact, Paul wrote this in Galatians. Now, Paul was writing to a group of believers in a, in a scattered area, Galatia, and he says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Isn't that cool? He does the same order as the prayer in the traditions of the rabbis. He says, 
uh, you know what? If you're a Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter because you walk into church and you drop that. Because when you walk into church, you are one in Christ. And then he goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free. Now, that'd be, that'd be really hard, too, especially if you were raised, uh, you know, as a slave or maybe you were purchased or maybe you were bought on the slave block. Who knows? Uh, some of the many of the slavery, uh, you know, conversations at the time, the Roman Empire, some people say a third or a half of the people were slaves, some kind of indentured servant sold in, some chattel slavery, some not. But the reality is you look down upon slaves and now you're a follower of Christ, you're brothers and sisters, and you walk in and you're sitting next to your master. And your master has no right to be your master at that point because we are all slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only slavery we have, right? And then, then he says this, and there is no male or female because we're all one in Christ. The reality is, is that all of our... Um, vain attempts because of a heart of fear and hatred to divide people, that's gone with the gospel. You have no right to view yourself as better than anyone else because that's not the gospel message. It's the gospel message is God, who, who is the very nature of God, humbled himself and became obedient to death and became a slave to all of us. He took on our flesh and entered into our world to die for us. And so you can imagine the tension that Paul might have been feeling when he wrote this because background, Paul was a Pharisee. So he would have been taught this prayer. He would have grown up reciting this prayer. As a good Pharisee, he would have repeated this with a proud heart, right? Because I thank you, God, that this morning when I wake up in the air I breathe, I am not a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I'm your loved person, not those hated Gentiles. God, I thank you so much that I am not a slave and have no rights that I'm not in poverty, that I am the master. And then finally, God, thank you so much for making me a man because I have value. And now Paul pens these beautiful words in Galatians to say the gospel flips that on end. You know, the reality is, is that when you read the gospels, you see Jesus giving incredible honor to women. In fact, in this section on the writings of Luke, we're looking at women, and Paul did a great job last week talking about, uh, not the Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul, he's good too. Um, Pastor Paul did a great job talking about that widow and the widow's might, the, the, the two coins there, because we want to see how Luke, and, and out of all the gospel writers, elevates the status and the value of women, or reveals that in the ministry of Jesus. Beautiful. And, and we want to see some of that in, in the days to come, in the weeks to come. But I want to start off by saying there's a myth that's out there. There's a, a misunderstanding that's out there. There's a lie that's out there that says Christianity degrades women. That's not true, that Jesus degrades women. The Bible doesn't allow for that. Jesus' teaching doesn't allow for that. Paul's teaching doesn't allow for that. And the history of Christianity the last 2,000 years doesn't allow for that because it shows the exact opposite. Wherever the gospel comes in, people are freed and elevated and they stand at the same level. In fact, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, he often had women as his followers. So there's this large group called disciples, and uh, they were men and women, and some of them women followed in this entourage, which would have been scandalous. But then there were the apostles, the specific ones that Jesus called out to be the leaders of his church that he was going to build. And, um, and the reality is, is that when he had men and women follow along as disciples, they were equal, and they were treated well. There's a really cool 
just a side note that Luke writes in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 3. I'm going I'm to show this to you. It says, soon afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is preaching. He's doing his thing. And the 12 were with him. That's Peter, James, and John, and all those guys. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chaza Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Talk about scandalous. Not only did these women, some of them of high standard or low standard, some of them who didn't have some of the same issues as others, but some demon-possessed and caught maybe in prostitution or in all kinds of struggles, they're providing the means that Jesus can continue to do the ministry. They're the main tithers of the church. They're the ones given the money to support the ministry of Jesus. They supported him, and because their response of him healing them, he honored them. It was a beautiful conversation. Now, I, I want to share that with you because over the weeks we're going to talk about Jesus and women. I don't want you to have a preconceived idea that Jesus is down on women. He's not. In fact, he's very, very high on elevating the status of women, and Luke does a beautiful job of that. And I want to talk about one snapshot in particular today of two sisters that had a little bit of a squabble, and some of you know what I'm talking about already. One's name is Mary, and the other's name is Martha. You know it. You know it. Okay, not Martha Stewart. Martha in the Bible, okay? But maybe a little bit of Martha Stewart going on, too, as we read the story. Okay, so if you have your Bible, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 10. It's the end of chapter 10, and it starts in verse 38. Uh, the reality is, the, I love the Bible because it talks about real people, real situations, real struggles. It doesn't shine it up to make it look good. It just presents it as it is. And so this story begins uh, with Jesus traveling with his disciples, and they encounter Mary and Martha. So let me read along. It says here in verse 38, 39, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Now, we know historically that village would have been Bethany, which is not too far from Jerusalem. Uh, and we know that Mary and Martha live there. We also know that Lazarus at some point, their brother, lives with them. Then we don't know about their, their parents, but we know Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live in this home. And they were followers of Jesus, and he loved them, and he ministered to them. Okay, so Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. They're traveling along. Maybe he's just got the 12 guys. We don't know. Uh, he could have had a larger entourage, but he's traveling along, and they stop off at Mary and Martha's home. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, a couple things just right off the top. It was, it was Martha's home. So somehow this woman, you know, owns this house. Now, she welcomes them, and, and Jesus in particular, into her house. It's important. She is the provider. She's the leader of this house. And why that matters is because in the culture of the ancient Near East, even still today, that if you were the leader of a household, you were required to show hospitality and give all your resources to anybody that comes by, anybody that travels. Now, you think about this. They didn't have in the ancient days, you know, between from village to village, which could be three, four, five miles, they didn't have a 7-Eleven pop-up. There wasn't a Walmart, you know. There wasn't a superstore. There were no Costco's, okay. And so they didn't have all the ways to provide that we do today. There was no gas station to fill up. They traveled from place to place. It was hot, they were tired, they were dirty, and they were hungry, and they would show up at a home, and starting from the very book of Genesis, you see you are required to show hospitality to people. 
You are required to invite them into your home, into your tent, to make a meal for them, to provide a bed for them if necessary. Why? Because it will be you next time. And a culture of hospitality provided for one another. So it's Martha's role and her responsibility to provide for Jesus and his disciples. And I doubt that he sent her a text along the way. And he probably didn't put a Facebook notice up so she knew where he was traveling and did the calculations herself. They just show up. Now, think about this, men and women. Maybe some of you ladies, you know this a little more than the guys do. Somebody shows up and you're like, uh, what are we going to do, you know? It's like, well, um, we've got ramen because I can heat some water quickly or we can call and have pizza delivered, right? But it's just like when a, when a group of 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe 20 people show up to your house, you're in panic mode, right? Okay, well, she goes into panic mode. Um, her name, Martha, and this is interesting, her name derives from the word lady or mistress or lady of the house. She's the responsible one. She's the one that's required by custom and culture to provide for Jesus. And it name, this name fits her responsibility. She is responsible. She is serious. <laughs> She's maybe a little intense, okay? She's a little focused. We'll see that. On the opposite side is her sister, Mary. And, and her sister, Mary, is a little bit more laid back. In fact, it says Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. So Mary decides to not do the chores. Mary decides not to come in and help Martha in the kitchen, as it were. She wants to hang out and hear from Jesus. Now, What's important to note about that is that was a place reserved only for men. The official position of the rabbis is that you would never teach a woman. Here's some more good rabbinic teaching. The words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusting them to women. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Seriously? Yeah. We wouldn't teach a Gentile because they're dogs and we wouldn't teach a woman. I'd rather burn the words of God than entrust them to a woman. Seriously? Why? Well, that rabbi went on to explain this, and I'll kind of paraphrase it. Because if we give religious education to our women, they will want to teach and study scripture, and that means they will be avoiding their domestic duties. <laughs> Which, ironically, is exactly what goes on in this story. <laughs> Mary's learning at the feet of Jesus when she should have been in the kitchen doing the work, right? There's the tension in the room right now. Martha has responsibility. She has oversight. She's culturally bound to provide for Jesus and his disciples, and she's freaking out, okay, because this was not on her schedule, her day planner, right? And, and more than that, Mary hangs out at the feet of Jesus where she's not supposed to be. She's supposed to be back in the kitchen, barefoot, right, hanging out. Well, Jesus doesn't have any of that. Mary gets to sit at his feet and soak up the teachings of her Lord. And he welcomes her and he invites her there. Well, the story continues. But Martha was distracted with much serving. That word distracted uh, comes from the idea of being dragged away. I like that. Anybody ever been dragged away by responsibility? Raise your hand. Okay. What are you, retired? Okay. All right. Obviously. So. Okay. Uh, I, I, I was... Uh, it wasn't bad, but I was dragged away yesterday. So the last couple of days in Salem in a board meeting for Corbin, and then I got to, I was honored to speak at commencement three times, morning, noon, and afternoon. And I, I was on the conversation call with a pastor in Lincoln City, a guy I know, and, and um, there was just something going on. I just told my wife, I said, babe, you ride home with the boys, put all the luggage in my car, I got to go to Lincoln City. So did about an hour and a half trip, got there. They were so hospitable, this 
um, elder and his wife. She had made enchiladas, so I got to sit down and have a 30-minute meal with them and then hopped in the car, went to an elders meeting for an hour and a half and talked about this challenge and, you know, spoke into them and prayed with them. And then I hopped in the car, got home at 9 o'clock, 9.05. My wife's like, you must be exhausted. No, I'm high on life because I get to pour out. But then I woke up this morning. <laughs> yeah, and trust me today, don't come by my house because I'm going to take a nap. Because I got distracted. I got dragged away by many things. We all know what that's like, right? We're trying to do something. We're trying to focus, and we just get drug away. That's what's going on in Martha's heart. Now, she has a good heart. She's intending to do good, but somehow all of these responsibilities and her activity is dragging her away from an opportunity to be at the feet of Jesus. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, I love this. Do, do you not care? And that, that's a great one. I love that. There's a couple times in the Bible, in the New Testament, when people come to Jesus as followers, say, Lord, don't you care? One, my favorite one is when the guys are in the boat, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is asleep. He has done ministry. He's just zonked. He's in the boat, asleep. A storm comes up, and the waves are going on, and they feel like they're going to just sink, and they wake Jesus up, and the first thing out of their mouth is, Lord, don't you care? <laughs> that's kind of weird. Lord, which means you're the big boss. Follow it, don't you care? Of course he cares. He's the big boss. He knows what's going on. Of course he cares. But she goes to him just frustrated, flustered. Lord, don't you care? Look at this situation. Tell my sister to come help me. She says, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, I know we've been there, right? How many of you have been working so hard at business or even for church, kingdom of God, and you feel like it's not fair and you get a little bit embittered because other people are not joining you. Raise your hand. Okay, all right. You know the feeling. You get it. I've been there, right? I have become embittered by the people that I'm serving because they're not helping me serve, right? That's a tough one for us. It really is. And that's what Martha is going through. So you got two sisters here. One is consumed with activity. That's Martha. And one is contemplative at the feet of Jesus. That's Mary. So consumed Martha and contemplative Mary. All right. You've got potentially, we could say maybe in our culture, task-oriented Martha. Check in the boxes because it has to get done. And you've got this people-oriented Mary just hanging out with the disciples, soaking it all up. So here's the problem. Martha is not the bad girl in this story. Mary's not the bad girl in this story. But the struggle is, is that Martha is paying so much attention to the preparations for her guests that she forgets about the main guest and what the main guest wants to do. Martha felt abandoned by her sister, and so she goes to Jesus to, to take care of the situation, to correct Mary's poor behavior. But that's not the response that she received, because look what Jesus says in verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Now, I would like to think that he goes, Martha, Martha, you know, wagging the finger. You know, ever done that with your kids? I've done that, right? You know, it's like, that's not what he did. This is tender. This is compassionate. Martha, Martha. Whenever in the, the Bible you see two words put together, or, or three, it's very significant. And there's a kindness to Jesus here. This is like, oh, draw on her close. Martha, Martha which is an expression of love. You are anxious and troubled about many things. 
The word anxious, um, at least from our old English, not, not in the original Greek here, our old English is the idea of pinching or constricting, and it was used of like choking off. Okay, have you ever felt like that? You're getting choked? That's anxiety. Anxiety chokes life out of us. You are, you are allowing yourself to be choked. You're anxious, Martha, and you're distracted, which is this idea of troubled. You're scattered. You're focusing on other things, and you're forgetting the main thing because he says one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I mean, that had to be a bitter sting because, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this work for you? And he's like, Martha, Martha, you know, you know I love you, but Mary's doing what she should be doing. She should be sitting at my feet. Hint, hint. Maybe you could be sitting at my feet too. But who's going to provide? Well, I think Jesus has already shown who can provide, right? <laughs> if he can feed 5,000, he can feed 13, 14, 15 people, right? So there's a tension in you and me. I know this. Um, sometimes we feel overwhelmed and sometimes we feel overworked. And sometimes I'm going to say we, but I'm really talking to myself here. I allow my activity for God to overshadow my devotion for God. Sometimes I allow the way I do the work of God to destroy the work of God in me. Anybody ever been there? You're so busy doing something that your heart becomes bitter as a result of it. Um, Martha was busy serving. There's nothing wrong with serving. I praise God for the 20% of the people to do 80% of the work at sunrise, okay, which is more like 40% do, you know, everything. We, we have so many amazing servers at Sunrise. But God forbid that we would allow our service to push aside the work of God that he wants to do in our heart of devotion. May you never be so active in ministry that God can't minister to you. It's a tough one. It's a, it's a big tough one. I'm, I'm just going to say this. This is not a story about task-oriented people versus people-oriented. It's not that story. It's about two different responses to Jesus. And uh, if you're by nature a Mary, man, God bless you. But I'm by nature a Martha. In fact, how many Marthas are in the room? Raise your hand. You find yourself busy and busy and busy, yeah. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it can become a bad thing if we forget the main thing, the most important thing, which is spending time with Jesus. Few things are as damaging to the Christian life as trying to do the work of Christ without taking time to commune with Christ. Um, there's a little book. If you want it, I'll email it to you. It's a free PDF because it's so old. It's in public domain. It's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And I read that when I was in, a sophomore in college, and it was so powerful for me. And, I, and I, I've taught it so many times. It's the idea that the urgent things, you know, the most immediate things, the urgent things can so overshadow our life that we never get to the important things and putting our priorities in order. Um, there's another really good book out there that I want to bring my friend Diane up. Diane's going to come and talk about this. It's called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. And um, I've, I've not actually read the book, uh, but Diane has. And a couple of years ago, she was doing a Bible study on it, and we had an interaction about that. And um, so I just thought, I saw her last Sunday. I thought, hey, Diane, you can help me preach my sermon. So you could finish it out. You could draw it to a close, <laughs> fix all my problems. Um, so, uh, 
Introduction, tell us who you are. Okay, I'm Diane Ingram, and I've been at Sunrise, I figured it out, Pastor James, for around 38 years. Wow, that's a long time. Um, and she's 39. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I am. Um, my husband and family came here, um, I think it was around 1985, so I am kind of telling my age here. Larry Allen days. Right, that's right. right. Uh, I became a widow um, in 2009. My husband died very suddenly. Uh, he had a brain aneurysm, and um, it was on a Tuesday, and he was gone on a Wednesday. Wasn't aware that my life was going to change like that, but it did. Uh, I did this study on having a merry heart in a Martha world. And it was finding intimacy with God in the busyness of our life. And once he passed away, I was busy. I was taking care of everything. My children were away. One was in college in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. The other one was in North Carolina. So I was here by myself. Thank God for Sunrise, who it's been so wonderful to me. Um, Let me back up just a bit. Yes. Bill was a worship leader. He sang. Yes. And um, he was on our one of our Hurricane Katrina trips. That's correct. I remember correct. hanging out with him on that one. Right. And then, and you're working. Yes. And so full-time work, mom, wife, you've got two great kids. They were in our youth group. They, That's they came correct. to Christ here. Right. Uh, great. And then all of a sudden, this just meteor shatters everything. Right. Your husband dies. I remember... John Geetson and I were there in the hospital with right. you, and it's like these are th these are decisions, right? And right. and it's it's hard, and you're you're left with half of you gone, and and your kids are gone, and you've got work, and and how did you handle all that? Because it's an incredible amount of responsibility. Well, I'm a Martha, so I'm task oriented, <laughs> and I was trying to get it all done and do everything. But for me, even in those things, there was such disappointment, such anxiety, weariness. All these things were happening. And I realized that I wasn't spending that time with God. So uh, there was tension there. And it was me. The idea that I really knew I needed to do that, but how could I find the time to do that? So what happened with me in, in doing this study, I realized that I needed to discipline myself. And also intentionally, I needed to spend that time with him. I realized that God wanted companionship and a relationship with me. And by spending that time and sitting at his feet, he could transform me into whom he wanted me to be. So I... I learned to discipline myself. I learned to kind of balance it. Um, and sometimes it's still hard. I can't say that I have perfected myself in that, but I know that it's necessary and that it's important. So by nature, you would be more the workaholic person. Oh, yes. You're the driven person. Yes. Okay, so a lot of us can resonate with that. I know that. Um, and so the Lord brought you on a very challenging journey yes. um, to draw you close to his heart. And you you were in, you led that small group of women, right? I led right? that small group. And that's a beautiful time. environment because right. it's not just you and Jesus. It's 
it's other women who are having the same struggle. And so we, we didn't start a, an MA, Martha's Anonymous group here at Sunrise. I would have joined. Right. But, um, but that is a reality. It's a tension, right? It for is. Us. It is. Constantly. But let's, but yeah, let's be honest. I was talking to a couple moms here, and I was trying to remind their kids that next Sunday is Mother's Day. But moms, when you've got like 14 kids or seems like 14 kids, even if you've got two, it's just like it's an overwhelming responsibility. And, and now you're doing all this on your own. What could you say to speak into uh, women, wives, moms who are carrying so much weight? And it's easy to hear a sermon, just chill out with Jesus. Have you looked at my schedule? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I would say be obedient. Mm. God calls us to be obedient to him. And that's what I needed to realize. At the end of the day, when I laid down my head at night on my pillow, I realized I had not spent any time with him. And that's what he wanted. So to all of you, find the time, be obedient to God. And that transformation will begin in you, as it did in me. All right. Well, okay. thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. And not that she's perfected this, and none of us have, but it's a journey that we go on. Um, I want to bring you to one little snapshot before the worship team, you know, takes over and we go to communion. Um, later on in, in, in the story, it's in John chapter 11, Martha and Mary are crying out for Jesus to come because their brother Lazarus is sick. And uh, as the story goes on, he's not just sick, he dies. And Jesus delays. And when he finally shows up, he's been dead for several days. And both Mary and Martha are hurt and they're frustrated by Jesus because he didn't show up. When he could have clearly shown up and brought life back into their brother's heart and to life. Which he eventually does. But there's a teaching point there where Jesus speaks to Mary and speaks to Martha and he says to Martha, you know, do you believe your brother will rise again? And she says, of course I believe, you know. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. She says, everybody's going to be raised for judgment. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live again, which is the gospel message. We put all of our hope in Jesus being resurrected, and he has been resurrected. So that now we know that one day we will rise again. This world is not our whole totality of life. Okay? And he asks Martha this question, do you believe? And I love these words. It always chokes me up. I, I remember the first time I read it, I was just reading through scripture and it just hit me hard. Her answer is, Lord, you know, I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I mean, Martha's like disciple number one <laughs> amongst all those knucklehead guys, right? She got it early on. And we hope at sunrise you get it, that he is Messiah. He is the one who would save us from our sins. But we have to come to him and receive what he has done on the cross for us. And then you will believe that he is the resurrection and the life. So I'm going to pray and we're going to worship and the, the Lord's table will be here. The bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Christ given freely for you so that you could have life. Father, thank you for our time and our message and our worship, God. Do a work in our heart. There's a lot of Marys in the world. Father, maybe they need to get a little Martha work going on, and there's a lot more Marthas in the room, and we need some Mary time of just being at your feet. 
Because we don't want the work of God that we do and the way we do it destroy your work in us. We don't want to become busy and embittered. We want to walk and run in freedom, knowing you, doing the work you've called us to do for your kingdom's sake, because you're doing it in us and through us. We pray in your name. Amen.